0: Welcome to this episode of Entangled With, the podcast about quantum technologies for scientists and science enthusiasts. I'm Josh, and I'm hosting this episode with Karis. We are first year PhD students in the Quantum Engineering Centre for Doctoral Training at Bristol. Today's guest is John Rarity, Professor of Optical Communication Systems at the University of Bristol and Fellow of the Royal Society. John was one of the early pioneers for experimental quantum information science in the 1980s performing some of the original experiments with single photons. He has remained a leading figure in the field to this day, overseeing many quantum technologies projects, such as the citywide Quantum Network in Bristol. In this episode, we talk with John about how he became a scientist, aspects of his research, and he ends by giving some advice to young scientists aiming to enter a career developing quantum technologies we'd just like to ask you a little bit about how, how it is that you became a scientist in the first place.
1: Oh, um, well, uh, I think as a child, I was a bit precocious um, sort of um, skipping years at school so that I was actually sort of a year ahead of everyone else in the, in the class, but also a year younger. Well, the year ahead worked well, but the year younger left me a little bit um confused uh, in, in the sort of second and third year and fourth year of sort of uh, senior school so the, the 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 years when you you're you're mentally confused anyway but um it yeah so i I was always ahead of everyone else mentally um um with the sums to uh, junior school and then with the concepts and the and, and things at senior school. and that just left me with um, two options as far as uh, the teachers were concerned. you can either go and be a doctor um, or, or uh, you can go and uh, do physics and um, or, or science and um, a, so um, I said, well I don't like chopping people up um uh, it makes me feel a bit queasy um even having a needle put in my arm so i think i'll go for the physics option um (coughs) rather than the and and even avoided biology in in some senses um but yes so I, i was good at that sort of thing good at sums. good at good at science by nature of my head but also because i was very inquisitive Uh, reading biology books, reading physics books from, you know, from junior school onwards. Um, um, The actual idea of doing physics as a subject by the time I got to the A-levels and was in my sort of revolutionary years, you know, the the years where you say everybody else is wrong and you know exactly what the universe is doing or the, (laughs) the world is all about, even though you've never left home. Um, uh, so I was a little bit disappointed in actually in going into physics. What I wanted to do was physics with uh, psychology or, or physics with um, something a bit more challenging that sort of mixed it up a bit. But on the other hand, I went uh, into physics and um, found it very easy again uh, because... A, in those days with very good A-levels, you were um, coming in with people with Ds. Uh, B, D, D to B was uh, plenty enough to get into university um, in your A-levels. So, again, those of us that came in with the, the, the straight A's um, found the first year almost a waste of time. So, a, it wasn't a waste of time. We spent, we used that time profitably in the bars uh, of the university. The University of Sheffield is student union is built on the likes of me because uh, they're the most profitable in the, the unit uh, unit. yeah. So that's where I was. So, yes, it was good. A good first year. Uh, the second year it got a bit worse. Um, he, and it was towards the end of the second year that I realized that if I didn't do something about my drinking habits, I would actually fail my um, degree. So I um, a stopped drinking, uh, took up meditation and dancing um, as uh, hobbies uh, to sort of give me a break from the physics um, and um, came out with a reasonable but not the top class degree at the end um, and, I, and, and was bored to tears with physics. I didn't want to do any physics after that three-year BSc, um, and I went off, did something else for a year. Um, he learnt French, washed dishes, uh, picked grapes, um various things, and came back to do biophysics. Um, and it, again, was still pretty sort of found the sort of the actual learning aspect and the and the being taught and having to learn things that you would maybe not ever want to know about again. um, I found that sort of really tedious. Um, And it was only when I got into a lab and they said, right, you've got an MSC project and it's your project and you're going to get some results. And I started essentially running off on my own direction that I realized, ah, This is what the hard work's for. I can now use what I've learned to go into the lab, and uh, it becomes mine. And the ideas and the inventions and everything that's new is mine. And at that point, I switched on and then registered to do a PhD with a largely absentee. Um, well I, 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 with a with a supervisor that went on sabbatical for the 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 first year of my phd i saw him for 3 weeks and then he went to canada um which again meant that i was able to just make my own phd he gave us he gave the initial direction he said go in this direction learn a bit of statistics do some um, fluctuation statistics of of Particles in and out of volume, so Poisson statistics. Um, but it was in light scattering, and and by the time he got back, he couldn't understand what I'd done. So that was the point at which I began to see, ah, right. So so researchers for me, researchers for me, and the scattering involved photon counting detectors. Um, and so having done the the, the three year, four year PhD. Um, I, I ended up um, he, through connections that there that my supervisor had. There was a team in um, the Royal Signals and Radar Establishment in Malvern that really um, was into photon counting, was into um, this light scattering business using photon counting, photon correlation, effectively measuring G twos uh, in one form or another um but the classical end of it rather than the quantum end although using photon counting for the sensitivity um and about three years after trying sort of unsuccessfully doing sort of um, physical chemistry or chemical physics physical chemistry where i'm light scattering from uh, colloids and and things like that and getting bored with that again uh, i saw my chance when they, they, um, a guy called Eric James said, look, we're doing these pair photon experiments. We're trying to make, um, non-classical light. We're trying to do quantum optics. And quickly then, um, I managed to lead that team, um, and draw to it some very smart people. Um, and we sort of learned quantum optics as we went along, um, sort of uh, in sort of four years, showing sort of the first experiments in anti-bunching, in sub poissonian light, in sub-shot noise. Then we went on to do stuff in um, entanglement. Um, our claim to fame was sort of the first, what we called entanglement in phase and momentum, but effectively maps directly onto the path entanglement that people are doing in the chip scale um, world um, e- in the labs today. Uh, Josh um, Silverstone's early experiment was very similar to one that we did then back in 1980, 19, starting in 87, um, but, but in ni- 1989, we sort of made that entanglement.
0: So that, that was uh, using nonlinear optics to violate Bell's inequality, wasn't it, that paper?
1: Yes, to, to generate uh, pairs of photons, and then uh, to show that you could have two ways, two paths for generating your pair, and you could in uh, the the two paths in, in involved two photons going in different different directions, um, um, but um, uh, um, yes, yeah, so. So when you sort of built the experiment, you had two de- two detectors looking at a beam splitter one end, and two detectors looking at a beam splitter the other end of the experiment. And um, effectively, by changing the phases delicately in the path, uh, the paths, and and making it a common path interferometer, we're able to show that we could entangle um, these different coloured photons. Um, but effectively it was a path entanglement experiment the color was sort of incidental so
0: um the the students on the first year of the cdt at bristol the quantum engineering cdt do a similar experiment don't they violating Bell's inequality using spontaneous parametric down conversion yes, was, was it was it was it much more difficult doing such a delicate experiment like that back in the 1980s compared to now um
1: well, the counting rates were about two orders of magnitude lower. So you might have a hundred coincidences per second in your experiment, maybe even ten uh, initially. Um, and so yes, um, the experiment was much more difficult. the the there was no integrated optics. there was no real understanding that fiber optics can help you define a mode. Um, that came. Sort of in the in the late 90s um we realized that you could define a mode with a fiber and so we began doing fiber coupled detectors uh in in the mid 90s uh, um, to sort of help alignment effect
0: so was was alignment a big challenge back then because obviously that would have oh. been before thor labs and those companies that made it a lot easier
1: we were um we uh, we didn't we were we were pointed in 87 in the in the early autumn of 87 we were pointed to by um Rodney Loudon uh, who was a sort of collaborator with uh, with friends in 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 Malvern in this um, RSRE where we were working and he said to us do you know that if you bring the your coincident Pairs of photons that you're getting out of your crystal onto a beam splitter, they 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 do something completely bizarre, um, and they, My colleague Paul Tapster sort of listened. I I was busy thinking of another experiment, but my colleague Paul Paul Tapster listened and said, "Oh yes, they do. Yes," and he went in the, looked at the paper, went, and so we went in the lab, and it took us weeks to sort of balance up the arms of our hongu it, because we didn't even know we were going to see anything um, it, and because uh, it hadn't been published at the time we were trying to set the experiment up. Um, but um, we, we um, finally managed by using sort of helium neon beams to align the two paths in our through our crystals, so that they would interfere it was all free space interference with with virtually zero light so it all had to be done with sort of alignment beams following the paths where our coincidences were seen and then closing apertures down and and then getting the path length equal um to 100 microns or better um, or scanning three millimeters and looking at the coincidence rates and not seeing any dips. It was, yes, it was a really frustrating week. And then finally, uh, out pops this little bit of interference signal, which you can then work on. The worst thing in an experimental life is when there is no signal visible in the noise. because um, you've got no pointers to where to go next. If there's a tiniest bit of signal that you can uh, work on and align and and pick up from, you're very happy. And so once we saw a tiny signal, we were very happy. We built um, the we we got the thing working. And then one of us went to the library at lunchtime where um, effectively the library was the archive of the day. And you'd go and look on the shelves uh, for the latest PRL. Um, and read. I'd sit and read it at lunchtime. And we went down there one day, and of course the the um, the, the the September, October, October, November version of um, PRL came in, and there was Mandel's experiment, uh, and we're saying we've just done it. We just got. <laughs> so again, there is the lowest point of the experimentalist life is when. And you have to learn to ignore when people do that you know when people just put you to the post you're just going to look for a quirk in your experiment that makes it different enough and accept the fact that you may be not in prl you might be in the journal of optical society of america that's the that's the frustration in experimental but there is a whole joy and sorrow in the whole process of doing it Uh, but once you're hooked um, you, you, you know, your life does. You know, you're not like ordinary people who are looking for a bigger salary, although that's useful. Um, you're looking how to, to to do the next experiment. Who's going to pay you the money to do the next experiment? How are you going to maintain your team doing the physics, the science, uh, when you're really meant to be an engineer or a technologist developing something useful from it? particularly as the royal signals and radar establishment was a military-funded organization yeah
0: if yeah. we talk a bit more um about your research so if we talk a bit about silicon photonics and why people should be interested in this
1: well uh, uh, i think the uh, i mentioned the fact that it, these these experiments were all free space originally and um it, And by the mid-90s, we'd realized that if you at least collected your light in fibres in a single mode, then uh, you could sort of basically send a laser beam back through the fibre and do all your alignment. And it sort of really speeded up the alignment of the experiment. Um, And so we we knew then that that, that there was going to be guided wave um, experiments in the future. Uh, and we also looked at fibers in the late 90s and realized that the fibers also allowed you to sort of do a four-way mixing because use the um, they they squeezed the light into a smaller diameter uh, than in free space and kept that diameter for a long um, length of fiber and so you could sort of do um Pair photon generation in a guided wave geometry, so we knew that, and so e, this sort of pushed us e, inevitably in the direction of integrated photonics. Um, people did things with integrated lithium niobate; others did things with um, integrated sort of silica, but the nonlinearity uh, really came to the fore when people started in silicon photonics um and again i didn't initiate this sort of integrated quantum photonics field in bristol i just accidentally recruited the the guy who did so i recruited um jeremy o'brien um who uh, and then jeremy um And I and others sort of uh, recruited Mark Thompson. Uh, And it was Mark, in fact, that uh, Jeremy sort of started the field of integrated quantum photonics. Um, And the story there is that uh, there were two students, uh, Alberto Politi and Alex Clark. Alex Clark was trying to do an experiment in the lab where the pair photons were generated in fibers, and the CNOT gate was made in fibers. Uh, and Alberto Politi was in the lab, in the lab next door with a bulk crystal, creating pairs, but launching into fibers, then into a a waveguide sort of CNOT gate. Uh, and uh, Alberto Politi finished his experiment in two weeks because he didn't have to do any alignment. It was not it was not difficult at all. He the, he went to the fab and he got back what he'd asked for. Uh, and once he'd sort of found the right bit of the the, the 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 circuit he was able to do a CNOT gate in in an afternoon almost whereas the alex clark sort of struggled because we'd gone to a sort of bespoke fiber manufacturer to get the right beam splitter performance of one-third two-thirds and things like that and, and um and there was all sorts of mess going on in the fibers, because we were trying to do polarization-based systems. But he, his experiment was published a year, two years after the science paper, where the integrated. And that, at that point we realized the fiber the, the guided wave is great. fiber will take you as uh, uh, some way, but it, at some point you're just going to have spaghetti in the lab, because by then the target was to sort of start. Entangling not just two photons but n photons. It was clear that was the way to go if you were going to do any quantum computation, which would of course become the 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 the, the key goal for these sorts of experiments. So so the um, the fibers continued for some while because there was a bit of a sensing and other things, but eventually Mark and Jeremy's silicon photonics. Began to be the 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 the, the most productive um, aspect and making in terms of grants and such like. So it grew very rapidly that area. And the, the and the, the the thing about silicon photonics is that it's it's lowish loss per nonlinearity. In other words, you can make pairs quite easily in a in a short length of um, silicon um, waveguide um, and any the other thing is that you go to you can make once you make one circuit work you can make 10 of them work because the fab that you're using has been adapted first from digital electronics and um, then to e- integrated Photonics classical um, and integrated photonics classical was getting a lot of investment in fab development, and so you could go to the fab and buy a what is effectively a, a classical circuit. There's no difference apart from, say, maybe you coil up some some waveguide to make a a longer interaction length for your nonlinear pair photon generation, but there was no difference. In the technology between the the photonics and the quantum photonics experiments, and so you could sort of almost like Lego brick together circuits, and very quickly make some uh, some significant progress. Um, as as we've seen with the the many publications, um, and as I say, sort of Josh Silverstone and Mark Thompson's first experiment. Um, was essentially generating the state that we had generated in, in 1987 or, or in 1989 and 1990. I think it got written up at PRL, the path entanglement state. And so it was very quickly clear that you could build up quite large path entanglement. You could also very easily increase the number of paths and make high dimensional entanglement. You could Um, The challenge with the silicon photonics was, of course, you had to bring your laser onto the chip and you had to bring your light off the chip. Um, And so initially that was the main problem, although coupling in and out has now become um, a sort of grating grating coupler sort of technology has improved so much that you can get light on, on and off. Without horrendous 3D sort of or six-axis nano positioning stages, um, you can you can do it sort of just by sort of aligning a fiber array to um, almost like an array of um, gratings that couple in and out the light um, to and from. Um, But it's still there are losses and there are problems with silicon photonics. Associated with losses if you're going to do quantum experiments. Because every time you add a photon, uh, the probability of detecting that photon or getting it through the circuit and detecting it is multiplied onto your probability of seeing an n photon. So you see that p to the n, that probability of it getting from generation to detection. Um, it, it drops uh, as p to the n, uh, where, where p includes the detector efficiency, the losses in the coupling, the losses in the circuit, etc., etc., etc. And the long, and the inefficiencies of the linear optics gates, etc. So the if the if the
0: if there are inefficiencies that that scale with the number of photons, and that presents a fairly serious issue for optical quantum computation. Obviously, Jeremy O'Brien has just got a massive grant to to have a real push to get a commercial optical quantum computer. Do you think there will be near-term applications for optical quantum computing?
1: Oh, there are um, near-term applications. Well, for for Jeremy's um, quantum computer, there are near-term applications because he is going for the full million qubit um uh, machine um he's not doing this nisc noisy intermediate intermediate sort of the um whatever it's called scale quantum computing and um, where you basically sort of then write bespoke algorithms which take into account the imperfections of your 100 gates or 100 that that are being measured so yeah he's doing his idea is that he will take uh, that 450 million investment plus previous investments um, and almost build his own bespoke fab because that's what stopped or stops us now in the physics community making bigger uh, bigger numbers of photons entangled is that um, we don't have say, the detectors on the chip, we don't have the lasers on the chip, we don't have ultra-low loss in our chip, we, um, uh, and all of these things are things that the, the classical integrated photonics community don't have. So you get to a certain stage and you've got to actually build your own fab and prove your own processes that allow you to build everything on chip detectors, nonlinear elements and such like, then you are able then to detect nearly every photon that you generate. You can do very fast switching to sort of improve the efficiencies of the pair photon generation to to near one pair per pulse. Um, And you can, um, as I say, engineer all of this sort of on-chip filtering and such like that gets rid of the weak pump uh, and allows you to detect um, e- with high fidelity the different states or the different sort of uh, X, Y, and Z measurements that you want to make. Um, uh, and the idea, and again, I, I, I defer to Jeremy and Mark, but the idea is that you you, you should be able to, Get to the fidelity um, levels that you can, and um, then start to implement error correction. Um, and there are arguments that by suitably configuring your 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 um, chips, that you can get to the what we call the percolation threshold, where the the these cluster states that you're making can be a contiguous up to a million uh, physical qubits, of which you might get uh, a few hundred um, sort of logical qubits fully error-protected to do uh, the the sort of near-term applications. And in some senses, the near-term applications of that sort of quantum computer um, could begin to be um, Factorization type problems, um, or small scale uh, molecular simulation—you know, intermediate scale sort of problems that are beginning to tax the classical computer. But problems that have are uh, posed and have answers, not problems that are invented to show that the quantum <laughs> computer is better at simulating itself. Than a a classical computer, so, so a noisy intermediate uh, a quantum computer is obviously going to be a lot better at simulating itself. It's built to be some sort of random boson sampler than a, a classical computer. So he, this this talk of quantum supremacy is still physics. It's not. It's not a. a, 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 a I'm, I'm waiting to see somebody say, and I'm going to use this to do um, uh, this, solve this problem. Rather, so it, than, Is it fair
0: to say that you weren't impressed by Google's quantum supremacy paper?
1: It, it, well, it, 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 when somebody says, uh, here's a problem that I've solved, and it can't be solved on a, on a classical <laughs> computer. That's my definition of quantum supremacy, really, I think. You know, it's really challenging and, and we probably still are 10 years away from that. But I, 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 I throw that out to the Google people, the Google scholars, to sort of uh, uh, be, be, beat us in that one.
0: OK. Can we talk a little bit about Bristol Quantum Network?
1: Oh, the Quantum Network. There we, um, we have a, a, an area which is quantum communications. Which sort of emerged, as I say, in the early '90s, with Arthur Eckert's first uh, proposal that you can use entanglement uh, to give you sort of unit correlation between two photons at remote locations, and so you could sort of apply a one for one side for for a photon coming out of one side of the beam splitter, and a zero if it came out of the other, and so you could establish a string of ones and zeros from the coincidence counts in a suitably configured entanglement experiment. And you can use some of your counts to um, to essentially verify Bell's inequality, thus um, ruling out any eavesdropper. Um, That sort of subsequently sort of was used as this sort of that sort of scheme was then used as this sort of source of security proofs for um, more classical schemes where you could use weak coherent pulses uh, leading on to the commercialization by people like ID Quantique of um, a weak pulse and the quantum key distribution systems and decoy states and such like, which enhance the security and, and fully security proved sort of uh, uh, as a faint pulse um, QKD systems. And so in Bristol, we started by buying ID Quantique uh, while um, colleagues in the group built chip scale sort of QKD systems based on those sort of weak coherent state, faint, faint pulse, QKD systems. Um, <coughs> essentially where you sort of e- encode the pulses in in uh, something equivalent to, to to what an entangled state system would be would be um, sending. And so we were able then to build small networks and and people across the globe have built small networks of these sort of a weak coherent pulse systems um, he, so bristol's not unique in doing that um, he, and when we joined their bandwagon we were a bit late in the day um, with our comms hub sort of six seven years ago um, he, but we also had in the um in bristol we had um, a high performance networks team which was looking at how once you've got a network, what more can you do with it than just point-to-point communication? How do you exploit the fact that there are many ways to go from one point to another in a in a, in a sophisticated network? Um, and so we did some work with them to show that you could, by configuring things in networks, you could sort of ensure that, um, you know, uh, um, what is it, a... a Methods where people sort of just prevent you exchanging key wouldn't work because you've got so many ways to get from A to B. Um, denial of service attacks could be could be prevented. Uh, since then, with uh, the Siddharth Joshi, um, a, a joined us um, and brought along with him um, a an entanglement based system whereby you can do all of this networking in the frequency domain. And um, so you have one source, maybe 21 um, e, uh, ITU channels, uh, each containing energy-correlated photon pairs, so that um, the central channels where you pump, and then either side of that you get 10 or so uh, correlated pair, has sort of the where the inner inner energy on one um, a photon is correlated with the most outer energy on the other so you can then build a, a an entangled state and um, a qkd system where the key doesn't exist then that's the the, the, the key feature of entangled systems you don't create a number and encode a pulse that you send you send your photons out there is no key until you decide um which basis to measure in at the two remote The two remote i'm trying to put the two remote locations decide whether to measure in x and and z in which case you probably don't get any information but if you measure in the same basis you'll get 100% correlation no matter what angle you measure eh, or or what phase you measure your basis uh, through, Um, what part of the block sphere you're projecting with your beam split or what what poles you're defining. And so that means that um, eh, there's an immediate advantage in security. There is no point at which the key exists until... The clicks of her and the sorting out which ones are 100% correlated and which ones you can use to sort of validate um, the, the, the security of the system, et cetera. Okay. Um, and then you've got, basically, you can build up a network there uh, using the colors because you've then got 10 different uh, pair photons, and you can basically make a fully interconnected graph. And I'd refer you to the papers to sort of um, show that. So you can make a fully in, a, a network which is equal, equivalent to a fully in, everybody has a link to everyone else. Um, it doesn't go it's not a fully quantum network in the sense that it 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 runs out of range at a certain point. And it would be better to try and extend that in a quantum way uh using something like quantum memories but um that's where i see the future in in, in quantum communications going and and it, it is to have some way of storing that photon in, in say a solid state or a gas or a whatever uh, until you need it or um uh, uh or even Doing some sort of processing the and entangling that photon with the next photon with the next link in the chain, so that you can make what a what is a what is a chain of a correlated photons, such that either end of the chain can establish entanglement. There's still no key. That's the point. Uh, that's the security of it. You can go thousands of kilometers of many links. Along this chain, with the uh, whatever whatever technology you establish your quantum memory in, and your quantum repeater in, um, and you uh, can end up with a store uh, at two en- at two ends of a very long chain of um, entangled photons, which potentially contain key, but you don't know what that key is until you measure them. So is it, is it sort
0: of like the, the quantum memories would sort of serve the role uh, that signal amplifiers serve for classical telecommunications?
1: A, in a very simplistic sort of uh, description, yes. Um, but of course, amplification is certainly ruled out for quantum communication yeah. because of the no-cloning theorem, yes. Next
0: Uh, Could we talk a little bit about the CubeSat experiment that's going on at Bristol?
1: So, again, just getting to a a quantum communications typically runs out in fibre at about 200, 300 kilometres without repeater technology. And the CubeSat, uh, the Chinese spent a billion dollars equivalent or whatever to launch a Cubic cubic meter satellite, which was able to do lots of physics and prove, uh, prove the principle that you can and probably can carry and, and is exchanging keys um, uh, till now. But it it basically stimulated in in the rest of the world um, were. European Union states and scientists were arguing about the best way to do it for about seven eight years prior to that Chinese experiment. Um, he 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 sort of galvanised all of those people who had been trying to do a, a key exchange to space um, into sort of looking at ways to sort of them be. Compete with that, uh, the, this demonstration, and look at technologies that might work for you know, commercialization. So, um, we chose CubeSats because that to us seemed to be a way where you could reduce the cost of, in, in a, 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 eventually, the cost of having a satellite um, key distribution system um, it, down to the hundreds of thousands. It doesn't cost much to get the satellite up there. It doesn't cost that much to build the satellite because most of the infrastructure is is sort of not mass produced but sort of produced in numbers. So these CubeSats are all identical, have similar stabilisation systems um, and can all be built, as I say, for um, of order 100,000 rather than 10 million um, and they're also because they're cheaper to launch and cheaper to build and such like they're also potentially things that you can put up there and, uh, and put a finite lifetime on so that they don't sit hurtling around in space until they crash into something and cause inevitably a, a, a sort of a, a, a cloud, a debris cloud, which can cause all sorts of trouble. Whereas these things sit up there for two, three years and then drop back down and you launch another one, and you can then upgrade the technology. That the, the whole point of space technology is what's up there in space is already 15 years old in terms of technology because they won't launch anything that is untested. And the CubeSat allows you to try relatively untested technology. So we've got three um, CubeSats, three or four cubes, or oh, you yeah, know, three CubeSat. Um, the um, missions that we're looking at uh, and we're building um minute sort of weak, coherent state QKD transmitters to fly on these things um, um, and pointing down to the ground, um, you can sort of exchange key with, say, um, uh, somewhere like Goonhilly um, or uh, another earth station somewhere uh a on one orbit um uh, and then the next orbit you can exchange key with somewhere somewhere else on the globe such as singapore uh and, a, and a, an observatory in singapore or los alamos or i'm trying to or on top of the roof in vienna if they can ever get rid of the the, the the night glow from the 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 uh, street lamps and um, or a mountain in tenerife you know you can basically then so you then share keys between tenerife and the satellite and Goonhilly hilly in the satellite and uh, by a simple x process you can then share keys between Goonhilly and uh tenerife so you begin now to see that there's no limit. There is a global range, and um, the assumption being that your sort of uh, your shoebox size satellite is very difficult to eavesdrop in. You know, you can't sort of intercept that satellite and get to its memory without destroying it, um, and without spending billions of dollars to sort of get up there to sort of grab it with your sort of net you might be able to do an easy denial of service attack by launching some icbm or some and then blowing it up but you 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 can't easily sort of so it's a trusted node as we call them it can be trusted um to store data and um in a secure way for the time it is required for it to be relayed via xor to the next station so the keys are 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 secured Yeah.
0: what advice would you give to young scientists aiming to get into quantum engineering
1: it, uh, firstly stick with it. it it may be boring having to learn sort of matrix algebra followed by differential equations followed by um you name it uh, without having any idea of how and when or where you might use these techniques um, uh, it because eventually you will at some point in the future if you're going to be a, a quantum engineer you'll need to know matrix um, manipulation you know sparse uh, sparse multiplications of binary I'm trying to think of it it hashing is what I'm talking about something like that is a matrix multiplication with um, a, a sparse matrix and so you know i i having missed those lectures because they were nine o'clock in the morning in my second year i can advise people that you really do need to go to them because you start at a much higher level than i started when i started trying to understand these things (laughs) so i would say stick with it uh, and uh, don't get distracted um and also and yes so that you start at the highest level because you're then going to be able to build on that, and you come up against a science problem or an engineering problem that people say there's not really. We we've been looking at this for months, weeks, and you can then say, "Well, I'll just sort of do a little bit of maths behind this, and hey presto, you you can sort of diagnose what the problem is and such like." So that's what I would say is and. You bear with it. I know it's boring. Um, But, uh, hey, when it becomes yours, when the project is yours, then, uh, you know, that's where the reward comes. It's a little bit of a delayed reward business.